Well, hey, welcome to Regeneration. My name is Kyle. I'm a pastor here, and I'm just super stoked to have you with us tonight. Uh, we are talking about marriage tonight, and so that's going to be fun because talking about marriage is always fun, right? Uh, but we're going to get there in a minute. Before we do, I just want to draw your attention just to a couple things, and then we're going to pray, and then we're going to dive in. Um, fun fact, we now have a brand new technology, thanks to Dylan, that means you can listen to our sermons online. So if you happen to miss a couple weeks, we've been in like a, this is like an 11-week series. We have one, two, three more to go. So maybe you missed somewhere in the middle. If you go to soundcloud.com slash regeneration, which I know that's a weird word to spell, but that's where we're at. We are regeneration. That was Kyle's bad for coming up with that URL. Uh, you can go there. All of our sermons from really like the last three months are up there, and they'll continue to be. Um, roughly speaking, this tonight's sermon will be up on Saturday next. Um, and I don't know if it's in the program, but we'll make sure to get that in there. Uh, in the weeks to come. Also inside that program, all sorts of info about who we are, what we're doing as a church. Um, inside of that is just one particular thing I want to draw your attention to. It's called the report card. Uh, it looks like a report card, but awesomer. And at, throughout our service tonight, I just want to ask you to grade us and tell us how we're doing. Uh, it is Regeneration's first birthday. We're kind of turning it into a birthday month. Uh, and so Please grade us, let us know what you think of worship, of hospitality, of even my preaching, leave comments, and then you can drop those in the basket right back there by Colleen and the general like kind of hecklers group against the wall. Colleen is uh, gesturing, please drop that in there on your way out tonight, just let us know how we're doing, we really, really appreciate it. We're going to be in Ephesians 5 tonight, Ephesians chapter 5, which is on page 706 of the Bibles. Now, they're not beside you anymore. They're kind of under you now, every other chair. So you want to look for this Bible. They're kind of under your seat. Um, while you grab that and go to page 706, uh, let me pray. Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for how it's your heart to communicate with us in a way that's understandable and clear and that really does transform us. And so as we enter into this time tonight and we look up the Bible on our phones or as we hear the pages flipping, I'm just thankful that it's your heart that we know you and that you have beautiful things to say to us about our lives. This is, Moses said, these are not empty words but our very life. Um, and speaking of life, thanks for preserving Betsy's this week uh, after a car wreck and just bring healing to her, we pray. Um, and even as we uh, just pray and, and wrestle through this text together. We ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts uh, so that we could see clearly who you're inviting us to be. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in Ephesians 5, uh, verses 21 through 33. Uh, and actually, I, I, didn't, I don't normally do this, but I would like to read the whole text just so we kind of all know where we're going. And certain portions will be on the screen behind me. But this is what it says. Verse 21, and further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body, the church, as the church submits to Christ. So you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. For husbands, this means love your wives, just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. 
In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body, but feeds and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church. We are members of his body. 31 says, as the scriptures say, a man shall leave his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again, I say each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. We're talking about, in this series, a living church. What it is, what it isn't, and we're dissecting and what one of Paul's letters that is almost entirely about the church. We're unpacking six chapters that the Apostle Paul wrote to help a church in a place called Ephesus understand what a church is. And one of the most consistent emphases of this letter in almost every chapter is this. It's that our relationships matter to God. The way that we treat one another, the way that we interact with one another is important because relationship is where our spirituality's rubber hits the road of real life, okay? A lot of Paul's instruction in this letter, things like be kind, be forgiving, tender-hearted, loving, humble, gentle, and patient, these are meaningless in a vacuum. If we're not in relationship, we can't really live into the way of Jesus. And so the living church recognizes that its relationships are important because the living church mirrors the gospel through its relationship. In uh, chapter 5, verse 1, Paul puts it this way. He says, imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you're his dear children. Paul wants, Paul wants us, Paul begs us, Paul pleads with us to live lives that are lives as dearly loved children, people who are fathered, to be live, loving lives of spirit-filled in ways that reflect the gospel. We reflect, Paul says, what we revere. And so Paul wants us to reflect God. And in 5.22 through 6.9, Paul lays out three particular relationships that mirror the gospel in perhaps especially profound ways. He talks about the relationship between a husband and a wife. He talks about the relationship between parents and children, particularly fathers. And he talks about the relationship between employers and employees. And Paul lifts up these three relationships almost like case studies to help us uh, take the general commands throughout Ephesians and put them into particular practice. But Paul begins this section in 521 with a general command that is really the foundation of these three relationships. And Paul says this in 521, and further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. At the heart of being a part of the people of Jesus is coming to a place in your life where you accept being in second place all the time. I had a mentor of mine in high school that always was telling my rather egotistical 17-year-old self-important snotbag self that I needed to try in everything I do to take second place, to always give somebody else the front seat, to put my ambitions, my preferences, my desires, my plans in the back seat so somebody else could take first place. And that's what Paul has in mind here. He says, submit to one another. It's almost like when you are 
going to open a door for someone at a restaurant and you kind of get in this fight of after you, no, after you, no, after you, no, after you. We keep getting stuck in that place, but Paul modifies this with these little words out of reverence for Christ, which harkens back to something Paul wrote in the letter to the Philippians where he says that even though Jesus was God, he did not equate, he did not believe equality with God something to be grasped. And so he emptied himself and took on the form of a servant. Jesus' way, the way of Jesus is always a way down. It is always a way lower. And in fact, Jesus says the way up is actually the way down. He says, submit to one another. It's not a really pretty word in our culture, submission. We like control. We like autonomy. We like to know that we're our own masters. It's really what the American dream is all about, that I can pull myself up by my bootstraps at any time that I want. And get what I want. And so we fear becoming a doormat. We fear being taken advantage of. But the reality is to live a life of submission to other people means that there are going to be moments where you're taken advantage of. There are going to be moments when you're treated like a doormat and we leave it to the Lord to let our reputation grow from that. He says submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, but then turns to both wives and husbands in this text to give them specific instruction uh, on that. And so we're going to start with the ladies because that's what we say is ladies first. Look at verses 22 through 24. He says, for wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body, the church, as the church submits to Christ. So you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. There are circumstances where this verse has been used by, or these verses has been used by wimpy, ignorant, waste of DNA men to get women to do what they want. They have used these words to abuse them. They have used these words to control them. And this is not what Paul has in mind. This is a larger conversation that we can have at another time. But as a general rule, the New Testament always elevated women from their place in society, not pushed them down further. Paul is not saying that women are chattel or property that we can just use as we want. Gary Thomas writes, Jesus confronted these very attitudes about women, lifting up women and including them in his inner circle of confidants. When Paul is writing women that they should be submissive to their husbands, he's combating an attitude that really quickly slips into marriage, and it's called contempt. You've heard this phrase, familiarity breeds contempt, and when you are married, there is no one with whom you are more familiar than your spouse. For good and for better, I mean for better and for worse, there is no one who you know better. Uh, no one knows my weird habits and preferences and uh, body smells like my wife. No one is more familiar with me. And out of that familiarity, contempt can seep in, which Paul is combating this in women as um, what I can only summarize as an eye roll. That for women, that contempt can take on this idea that men are stupid they're ignorant, only controlled by their base or their desires. I love the movie My Big Fat Greek Wedding because at one point the main that when all of the women who are very obviously the power brokers in the family are talking, someone says, well, remember, the, the, the Lord says the husband is the head of the house. 
And one of the other women turns and says, yes, but the woman is the neck. And we tell the head which way he wants to go. Another way to think of this is perhaps in that show that was really, really popular like when I was younger, which is Everybody Loves Raymond, where all of the men in the show are kind of depicted as these fools that kind of need to be cleaned up after. And so the women are constantly getting them out of jams because they lie or they don't tell the or they don't do what they were supposed to do. And so what happens is into your marriage creeps this contempt that says, my husband is dumb, my husband is uncontrollable, my husband is not to be taken seriously, and in fact, if, we're going, if I'm going to accomplish what I want, I need to manipulate and sneak around my husband to get what I really, really want. And that's what Paul doesn't want in a marriage. To be submissive is maybe further defined in verse 33, when Paul says the wife must respect her husband, that inherent in a marriage comes this idea that your husband is respectable, that you always speak well of him. But Paul doesn't have a whole lot to say to women in this passage. Of about 160 words in verses 21 through 33, about 110 of them are directed at husbands, which means on some level the priority in a marriage is given to the dude. Um, what's interesting, too, is when we hit the children's and par- children and parents text next week, uh, he's going to go mostly after fathers. And so, men, I'm going to be smacking you around for the next two weeks. Ladies, bring the man that needs smacked around in your life, and we'll glad to be of assistance. P- First Peter says that women are the weaker vessel, which doesn't mean that women are frail or lesser. It means that women are a wine glass. You have to treat them delicately so you don't break them, but men are more like a thermos. I can throw them around, stomp, them off, stomp on them, and run over them with my car, and it'll still pretty much be functional. Paul says to husbands this. He says, for husbands, this means submitting to one another. Check this out. Submitting to one another means you love your wives. I was really instructed in reading this text uh, by the translation of the message, which if you've never read the Bible, you need to pick up a copy of the message It's a really contemporary translation that's really easy to read. I would read that. But look at, I have it on the screen here, what he says in the message. He says, husbands, go all out in love for your wives, exactly as Christ did for the church. A love marked by giving, not getting. Christ's love makes the church whole. His words evoke her beauty. Everything he does and says is designed to bring out the best of her dressing her in dazzling white silk, radiant with holiness. And that is how husbands ought to love their wives. They're really doing themselves a favor since they're already one. The the text asks husbands and those of us who would one day want to be husbands these questions. Are, are Are you going all out in love for your wife? Is your love marked by getting, giving, not getting, which might be for you defined by how you operate your hobbies or who holds the TV remote more. I don't know. Uh, The text says, do your words evoke your wife's beauty? Do you bring out the best in your wife? Or are you willing to bring out the best in other women? Are you willing to only speak words that evoke a woman's beauty? Perhaps the best way to summarize this question is this, guys. Does your wife feel like she's married to Jesus? Does your wife feel like She's married to Jesus. See, contempt is not a woman thing. It's a both of us thing. Contempt slips into a marriage when men believe that women are hysterical and that their emotions are to be micromanaged or at best ignored. 
that when they cry, when they rant, it's not really something that we should listen to, it's something that we more endure and then move on. And yet Paul's calls to, Paul calls on husbands to lead in their marriages in this way, to set a temperature in their marriage of listening, of caring, of going all out in love, of self-sacrifice, and yes, submission. Because the primary thing that when Paul likens Christ as the husband to the church, his first words are, he gave up his life for her. And if that's not going to second place, I don't know what is. Gentlemen, the Bible does not permit you, does not permit you to be silent or passive or wimpy. And a silent or passive or wimpy husband is the guy who when his wife says, you never say that you love me, The silent, passive, and wimpy guy is the guy that says, well, I told you the day that we got married 35 years ago that we we love each other. I said, I do, and they never say it again. This this morning, I gave our morning church uh, the homework that a husband has to, the husbands in the room had to say, I love you to the wife, his wife, five times every day this week. And then I realized that there's some jerk out there that thinks it's okay to roll out of bed and go, I love you, 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 and move on. So much for following the spirit of the law as opposed to the letter. Paul is going to make two points in these verses. He's making a theological point, which I'll hit in a second, but he's also making a practical one. So let's talk about the practical one. Our favorite book on marriage, me and Steph, our favorite book on marriage is called The Sacred Marriage. The subtitle is, What if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? It's really a tremendous book. And Gary Thomas says that in order for us to live into the vision of Ephesians 5, for us to mirror the gospel appropriately, we have to have contempt for contempt. That we have to have contempt for the contempt that slips into our marriages. And he names two ways for this to happen. The first is that he says, we have to recognize our own flaws before we see our spouses. Contempt slips into my marriage when I only think if Steph would do X, Y, and Z, we would be happier. Contempt slips into our marriage when Steph says, if Kyle would only X, Y, and Z, we would be happier. She is so patient with me when I forget for weeks on end to deposit my paycheck because we don't have direct deposit. Um, It's, yes, it's it's exactly like living in the Stone Age, in case you were wondering. Uh, And I forget forever, and she's so patient with me because I do this about every time. Evidently, I'm not super concerned about money, but um, I also don't do the bills. So, um, Instead, the way of Jesus says that I have to ask God to change me more than I ask him to change her. And when I'm only concerned about changing her, I'm not really in love with her anymore. I'm in love with my idea of her. It's not what I'm called to do. But Gary Thomas also says this, that we fight contempt through gratitude. This is the quote that's on the screen. He says, when I'm thankful for my spouse, the control that the familiarity of contempt has on me is broken. I look for new things to be thankful for. I try not to take for granted the routine things she does. I never eat at another person's house without thanking them for providing a meal. Why should I not give my wife the same thanks I'd give someone else? When we let an ungrateful heart creep into our marriage, contempt has won. So Paul makes this practical point to have contempt for contempt. But he also has this theological point to make, which is that we mirror the go- marriages mirror the gospel in a particular way. They mirror the relationship that Christ has with the church. 
they mirror the way that Christ uh, loves and serves and cares for the church. And so our marriages are worth fighting for and they are important because, because it, through our marriages, people either gain a clearer or dimmer vision of who Jesus is. Paul lands with these verses in verses 31 through 33. He says, as the scriptures say, and here he quotes Genesis, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. I actually have a different version up here. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. I love the tone of the text. Because Paul says, this mystery is profound. I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. That's about all I understand. So in the, in the, in the gap of our understanding, husbands love your wives, wives respect your husbands. Uh, Steph and I got married on June 23rd of 2012. Uh, and here's a picture of us just having said I do. Um, I stole that pose from Pinterest, but there you go. Uh, I liked it a lot. And at our marriage, we made a really big deal out of Ephesians 5.32. It's actually, you can see it on this next picture. Uh, that verse that says, this is a great mystery. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying it refers to Christ in the church was written on our aisle runner. Someone painted it for us. And we tried to really honor throughout our wedding the idea that even the very acts that we were engaged in, her coming down, I mean, everything, I kind of got obsessed. I didn't really plan our wedding, our wedding outside of the service. I kind of let her handle everything else. And um, because all of it is to point to this is how Jesus and the church interact. That this is a sacred mystery that the intimacy experienced between a husband and a wife, the trust and the joy and the, and the care and even that sense of when I see her walk through the door is the mutual trust and understanding that Christ delivers to us through the gospel. Um, in a minute, we're going to sing a song called You're Beautiful by Phil Wickham. Um, and that's actually the song my wife walked down the aisle to. Um, but it was actually like a worship song. And you'll see how it ends. Marriage teaches the church what it is to live cooperatively and intimately and passionately with and for Jesus. It shows other people the kind of dependence and trust and love when a person finds Jesus. But this, of course, uh, leads to an important question, which is this. What about single people? What about the single people? Um, the church for a long time has made marriage really important. It's elevated marriage as the sacred estate. And, and it's important. When I do a wedding, I'll say something like, um, marriage was instituted and created by God. It was adorned and beautified by Christ's presence at Cana of Galilee. And it is in, into this holy estate that these two people come now to be joined. Marriage is unique and special and should be cherished and elevated and honored. Hebrews says, let the marriage bed be held in a, the highest honor. But the problem with elevating marriage is that the church has kind of become a couple's only thing, that it's hard to find your place if you're single because you're kind of now that other person that floats. You know when you're sometimes out to eat and there's five of you? One of you gets kind of like peninsula out here and so like, or it's when you're the only person sitting in the back seat of a car and there's two people in the front and they're kind of having their own conversation and the whole time you're like, what? Huh? Pay attention to me? Hello? This is actually a story. I, you, get, you get good stories at night because I'm not as crunched for time. One time we were driving, my two best friends and I were driving to Cedar Point when we were in high school 
Tony was in the back, and Tony was getting so frustrated that we sat the three of us across the bench seat of my uh, Chevy, uh, no, my Ford Taurus. And actually, from one point, Tony was driving from the middle of the seat. It was pretty awesome. And so for a long time, I saw singleness through really one lens, which was my own. Um, I was a young guy. I was 21, 22 at a Bible college, Moody Bible Institute, that we jokingly call Moody Bridal Institute. And the tagline is, a ring by spring or your money back. A couple weeks later, I met Steph. We, we got set up on this group date that was weird. And then later, my mentor and her coworker said that we should go out, and we did. And uh, our third date was her 30th birthday. And so um, there's a handful of years between us. And so I started to see singleness through her lens, which was I was really her first third date. Before me, there really hadn't been anybody, which, you know, dust your shoulders off. I'm pretty awesome, I know. Um, <laughs> But imagine working at a college called Moody Bridal Institute, jokingly, as a single woman, kind of mysteriously. And then I became a pastor, and I started seeing singleness through another lens again, which is um, there's some people that I know that have had beautiful marriages of 40 or 50 or 60 years um, that come to an end. And that's a whole different kind of singleness. I mean, that's, I remember somebody saying to me, I put on my clothes and I look at the picture of my wife and I ask her if it matches. And, and you see singleness through this lens of, yeah, I had a marriage and I divorced a number of years ago and it's never really worked out. And so the question becomes, if marriage points us to the relationship that exists between Christ and the church, what does singleness point us to? What value does singleness have amongst God's people, amongst God's family? There's a book called um, Real Sex, uh, The Naked Truth About Chastity by a woman named Lauren Winner. And if you're single, um, you need to read this book. The cover of it's on this next slide. For some reason, I have two copies. I don't know what that says about me, but I do. Oh, one is my wife's. Okay, that's a little better. Um, if you're single, you need to read this. If you're married, you have to read Sacred Marriage. Um, she writes this, just listen to this, it's kind of a long passage, but I think it's important. She says, singleness tells us, for starters, of a radical dependence on God. In marriage, it's tempting to look to one's spouse to meet one's needs. But those who live alone, without the companionship and rigor of marriage and sex, are offered an opportunity to realize that it is God who sustains them. Unmarried people are asked to specialize in creating and protecting emptiness for God. An emptiness that everyone, married or single, needs to maintain. This, perhaps, is why Aquinas spoke of, a, of celibacy as a vacancy for God. Lauren writes, Singleness reminds us, reminds Christians that the church is our primary family. In an era in which the church is known for promoting family values but not social justice, in an era in which families are so exhausted from an endless round of after-school ballet lessons and late-night work-related email sessions that they sleep through Sunday morning worship, in an era when middle-class Americans hurtle across exurban sprawl in our SUVs and then zip through our subdivisions and into our garages without ever speaking to our neighbors, 
This is a very important lesson indeed. Marriage and families can be sources of grace, but they are not the primary source of grace. The primary source of grace is the church. Single people witness to the Christian hope that the kingdom of God unfolds not principally when we nurture our nuclear families, but as theologian Stanley Hauerwas explains it, when we show hospitality to the stranger, I think it's vital that we have good language for singleness in the church. I think it's vital that we let people know that that space they have in their life is a vacancy for God. It is an emptiness for God that around the edges of their life is space that, yes, would be maybe even filled to overflowing were they married and with children, but now have in that space an opportunity to cultivate an intimacy for God um, that married people can't. Go home and read 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7, the Bible says through Paul, I prefer that people would remain single. Because when you're not, you're distracted by things of this world. He's talking about gas bills. Do you know how distracted I am by mowing grass? I'm so distracted by that. It's annoying. Do you know how distracted I am by our finances? When you're single, some of that can fade into the background and you have all of this room to do other things. There are unique callings and seasons to our lives that we have to honor. And in any season, singleness reminds those of us who are married that we have to leave room at the edges for God. There's a woman that I was thinking about this today, and she's just that person. She um, has been single her whole life, never married, Um, And she uses so much of her time to serve and love and care for others. She uses so much of her time to nurture other people. She has, and, and this woman, I can only say, knows Jesus in ways that I don't. If you're single, your singleness demonstrates the church what it means to have room for God. It demonstrates to us what it is to have a family that exists in a way that is deeper than blood. Ask my wife about when she was single, what role the church played in giving her a place to belong. This, by the way, is why singleness is, we we can't view singleness as something to be passed through as quickly as possible. Because when we do that, women and men marry bad spouses. But when we don't have good language for singleness, it's how fast can I hit the abort button, get a ring on my finger, and be happy and have babies and have a minivan. Paul says, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly beloved children. That in whatever season we are, uh, we are called to be people who, who imitate and mirror the gospel. And yet marriage in God's economy has a special place because it demonstrates in ways that other things do not the unity that exists between Christ and the church. There is a deep union. We are one with Jesus. We sang that in that song. It said, Christ has risen from the dead. We are one with him again. Marriage bears testament to what we celebrate at this table that through a body that was broken for us, that for blood that was spilt out for us, a way was opened that we could be one with the Father again through the power of God, 
through the power and blood of the Son, sealed by the Holy Spirit. And marriage demonstrates to us that intimacy. And so whatever season you're in, single, married, or somewhere in between, Jesus comes to us at this table and reminds us that our greatest attachment in life is to him. Did you know that Jesus says in the New Testament that in heaven people are neither married nor given in marriage? Marriage is a temporary estate, which I think sucks because I really like my wife. (laughs) And yet the, the deepest and most important union to which we're called is the one that is shown to us at this table. So the band's going to come and they're going to lead us in a song. Um, And as they do, um, you can come forward, take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, taste and see that the Lord is good. If you're giving tonight, um, you know, a few weeks ago we did this thing called the recovery rally and we went downtown and there's all these people from recovery houses and have loved ones that are in alcohol, like in addiction right now. And Here's what we did. We gave away 250 pairs of sunglasses that said Regen on them. We gave away like 70, 60 of our mugs that you can get at the back. And, and this is why we did that, because um, I want the world to see the church is generous. And so when you give, that's what your money fuels. When you give, what fuels this is not like, it's not so we can keep the lights on or like buy those little green balls hanging from the ceiling out there so we can be generous toward people and show them Jesus. So let's pray together. Father, uh, help us to even taste our union with you in a deeper way today. Thank you, Jesus, for loving us, for giving yourself up for us. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for sealing that union together. Father, pray for the single people in this room that their singleness would not be something they're tempted to abort, but that it would be something that they find your presence in a tangible and deep way this week. Father, I pray for the married folks in the room that their marriage would have contempt for contempt and that they would fan into flame that love that they have for one another, that they would express gratitude and repentance for their own failures. Use this table to that end. Use this meal, as simple as it is, to that end. Pour out your spirit on these simple gifts of bread and cup that they might become to us the body and blood of Christ which he so graciously and generously broke for us, his church, his bride, so that we could be with him forever. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The table is open.
May you know this week what it is to live deeply and reliantly on the Father. May you know the forgiveness of the Son offered freely to us. May you know the power of the Spirit walking with you. Whether you're single or married, Jesus invites you to know him and to allow him to fill the edges of your life. And so may that be true this week. If you've not graded us, I'm an overachiever and need to know my report card scores. So please grade us, stick it in the basket. Um, in the meantime, hang out with us. As always, the rule is do not touch anything to tear down until 710. You're loved. We'll see you next week.